on Radio Pulpit, Radio K Pulpit, uh, on the show Table Talk uh, with a really good friend of mine, Andrew Butterworth. Andrew is a pastor from Godfest. Uh, down the road and over the hill and around the corner from Crystal Park Baptist Church where I serve. Uh, normally, I'd have my partner in crime, Temple Pitzel, uh, extraordinaire, uh, sitting next to me, but he has yielded his chair so that Andrew could come in and chat to me about a topic that we've been engaging on for the last number of months, uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, uh, the story of uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, uh, along with their founding pastor, Mark Driscoll. Um, it is a podcast series that has been produced by Christianity Today, and we'll get into that a little bit later. In actual fact, e- even, as I, even as I mention that, I-, I have no doubt that a number of the long-time listeners uh, of the podcast have been watching that podcast, uh, and I'd love to hear from you in terms of your thinkings as you've been going through it, what has stood out for you uh, in terms of that podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking through a number of topics today, and on each one of those topics, uh, you can feel free to engage with us. Uh, we really do want to hear from you. Uh, what makes uh, Friday mornings fun for me is the fact that we have long-time listeners and first-time listeners uh, shooting the breeze with us and getting our weekend started as we talk about all matters biblical, um, and in this case, regarding the church. How might you speak to us? You rightly ask, <laughs> and let me tell you how. On Facebook, you can find our Facebook page, Radio Pulpit, Radio Console, and uh, there you'll see we're currently live streaming. If you pop a comment into that live stream, I get to see it right here in front of me, uh, and we can bring questions, comments, observations, uh, or thoughts into the discussion. You can also send in voice notes or three-point questions, Teresa, uh, to WhatsApp and Telegram. If you've got a pen and paper, you might want to take the number down now. It is 082-657-2729. If you're a twit, you can tweet with us on Twitter, at 657AM is our Twitter handle. And you can phone in to the studio and speak with us directly. It would great, be great to hear from a person like Glenn or even a Roland Eskenazi, although that might be an international call, so uh, Roland, maybe WhatsApp or Facebook is for you. Um, but you can phone into the studio, and the number is 012-334-1322. Did you miss any of those numbers? I have no doubt. Uh, you can find them just by going to uh, any of the following Facebook pages. And right now, we are streaming the show live to Crystal Park Baptist Church, our Facebook page, to... Pastor Mark Penrith, I think it is, uh, that Facebook page, as well as to Radio Pulpit, Radio Console, that Facebook page, and all the details to connect with us live on air are in the show notes. We are looking forward to chatting to you. We're going to start off this morning with a regular insert, uh, a conversation with Michael Swain, our friend from Cape Town. Michael is the Executive Director of Freedom of Religion South Africa, 4SA for short. He has studied law abroad. He's been successful in business. Michael has uh, co-founded His People Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa, and he's an all-round nice guy. Michael, it is great to have you on the radio this morning with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I I love your uh, public relations views on me. I think we'll have to send you your check. (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to be looking. I'm going to be looking in the mailbox, brother. I'll take you at your word. <laughs> so obviously, 4SA is a legal advocacy. Uh, 4SA is a legal 
advocacy organization working to protect and promote the constitutional right to religious freedom in South Africa, which, I mean, in our country is just such an important task that you guys have been set aside to. Uh, we're really grateful for the work that you do. Uh, for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about things like um, the hate speech papuda, uh, as well as other amendments and bills. We've been talking about a number of controversial issues, such as uh, the introduction of sexual education into school curriculum at public school level. I know my wife was, uh, uh, our daughter's in grade 12, and so the principal of the school that she attends was talking about that uh, last night at the parent-teacher uh, association meeting. But today, um, Michael, if I understand you correctly, you've chosen to talk about really a contemporary issue, but not one that we're asking people to vote on. Um, the retirement of former Chief Justice Mukheng's uh, retirement uh, from the Supreme Court, the Constitutional Court, uh, as well as steps that are involved in terms of the appointment of a new Chief Justice. Uh, and these are really topical, really relevant, and something that I'm guessing a whole lot of our listeners don't really understand. Uh, you're going to be uh, filling us in uh, this morning regarding that. Uh, may maybe let's just start, Michael, by asking the question, what does a Chief Justice actually do? Well, the Chief Justice is probably, well, not probably, without doubt, the most important judicial position uh, in South Africa, in the South African judicial system. Uh, he is uh, a constitutional court judge, and he is therefore head of the entire South African judiciary, which means that every court in the country, from the constitutional court right down to magistrates' courts, um, and he takes the responsibility. So he really sets the, 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 the pattern, if you like, and, and has the role of establishing and monitoring the norms and standards for the exercise of judicial functions of all courts. So it's a very critical role. You know, the judicial system is one of the three legs if you like, of a democracy. Uh, you have the executive, which is typically the, the president and the office of the president. And then you have the legislature, which in our case is the National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces. And then you have the judiciary, which are basically uh, legal experts whose job is to interpret law, not typically to make law, but certainly to interpret law and to make sure that the rule of law is therefore, uh, in that sense, established and, and upheld. So a very, very critical position, uh, the position of the Chief Justice. Now, now, this particular Chief Justice from time to time got himself into the public eye for matters other than legal. I, I mean, he, he, he has been relatively controversial over time. Uh, I, I mean, you, you want to maybe just uh, talk to that a little bit? Well, yes, I mean, he, he was appointed, of course, um, to the Constitutional Court as a judge by former President Jacob Zuma in October 2009. And then he was appointed somewhat against the run of play. I mean, I don't think he was necessarily the forerunner for the candidate, um, but he was appointed as Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court in September 2011 by the former president. So, uh, and that is the prerogative of the president is to appoint the Chief Justice. And there's a process and we can chat about that in a minute. But yes, he, he, he was uh, in one sense controversial. He probably um, will be remembered most of all for his Encantler judgment, where he basically um, upheld the uh, public protector then Tuli Modern Seller's um, report that she had made. 
And that obviously released uh, an entire, a completely different and perhaps at that, uh, up until that point unforeseen uh, series of uh, events. And we're still, if you like, um, living in that post-encounter judgment world uh, in, in, in one sense. So, you know, he, he is and has never uh, denied in any way, shape or form, um, a very strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he has obviously prayed uh, in, in public uh, in, in a very obvious way, and he has certainly asserted his uh, constitutional rights to be allowed to express his faith uh, as he sees fit, obviously. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he has had a, a level of controversy. He's obviously made one or two remarks that have caused people to maybe blink a bit. And there was uh, definitely, as you may recall, and I think Forrest wrote about uh, the situation whereby he made some uh, comments about uh, Israel. Uh, but again, I, I don't think those are the things that he will be remembered for in history. I think I, I think he, he has been a, a, a very, um, you know, a, a judge and, and, a, and, as you say, is the head of the judiciary. He has, he led the judicial system through what was probably a potential significant crisis uh, in, in, in the whole encounter situation. And I think therein, he really did establish or maybe reestablish the importance of the independence of the judiciary in our democratic uh, process. Michael, how, how long do judges serve for? Uh, what, do they have a term of office? Is it a lifelong kind of uh, gig? Yeah, well, interesting enough, unlike the Supreme Court in America, where it is literally a lifetime appointment until they either retire or, or, or actually die, um, our constitutional court uh, judges are appointed for a term of 12 years uh, and or, uh, or, or if their 70th birthday comes before then, then they must retire on their 70th birthday. So it, it, it is a process that is set out in the constitution itself. And it, it's it's obviously one that is now uh, unfolding. It's been in the news recently, and the new chief justice, as we speak, has yet to be appointed. Oh, Michael, I think we lost you there. Well, I'm hoping we lost. Sorry, you we froze. We froze. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was I was thinking maybe we lost ourselves uh, or you or something. But it's good to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were saying just in terms of the term? Yes, so, so it, it's a 12-year term, uh, or if your 70th birthday comes before the end of your 12-year term, then you must retire whether your term is up or not. Um, and it, it's a process that is set out in our constitution. Uh, the appointment mm. process basically says that the president, after consultation with the Judicial Service Commission, the JSC, which is a independent uh, commission, if you like, which actually looks at who should be shortlisted, uh, then sends a list through to the president. And the, where we currently stand is that this is a public participation process. The public was invited to nominate people for the position of chief justice. And that uh, opportunity expired on the, on the 1st of uh, October. And eight names were then compiled for people who nominated, who were nominated by the public. And then uh, the president, interesting enough, reopened that list for further comment 
and the deadline for those comments was actually October the 15th. So really all we're left with now is for the president to look at the short list that he's been presented with and to make his appointment. And who do so we, we want to, to be the chief? And who do we want to be the chief justice, uh, uh, the next chief justice of South Africa? I mean, is there is there a particular person we should be praying for, or a particular person that uh, you guys would advocate for? Yeah, I think the most important thing is is that we have somebody who will uphold and abide by and cherish the rule of law, particularly the constitution, which is of course the highest law of, of this nation. And that really is the primary job of the Chief Justice as well. I mean, yes, he's responsible for the general operations and, and, and functioning of the judicial system, but that's the most important thing. And so, you know, interestingly enough, we, for SA, do, do not have a view on who we would like the Chief Justice to be other than that. Um, and to a measure, that's because that person will be literally the most senior judge in the country. And we, we obviously are neutral in so many ways as, as a legal advocacy group. We're faith neutral, we're doctrinally neutral, we're politically neutral, and therefore we all are also in that sense judicially neutral, uh, other than the fact that we obviously are wanting, and I think we must all pray for, somebody who really does uphold the rule of law and respect and uphold the constitution of this country. Yes. Well, Michael, uh, you know, I want to give a, a shameless plug for 4SA. Uh, if listeners are interested in this topic and other topics, uh, the place to go is uh, your website, which is 4SA.org.za or just .org. <laughs> I can't believe I, I forgot that. .org.za. .za.org.za. <laughs> um, and, and I know that you've been running a series of webinars for the last uh, month. Um, I, I'm fairly certain that the last one's coming up. What's the topic for, for this Monday, uh, 7 to 8 p.m.? Yes, we, we, you can still register. You can go onto our website and you can click uh, on the image there and you can still register. We're actually talking about what would a post-Christian South Africa look like? Um, oh, it's a there very you interesting go. That, topic. And you know, it, it's going to be the final Monday's, one in our series. Monday's my day off, Michael, and uh, pastor's day off is uh, controlled and regulated by I the know. pastor's wife. I mean, I've got to be so careful uh, yes. what I commit to yes, and what yes. I do. But but that topic actually might draw me out. <laughs> I might be seeing you at 7 o'clock uh, this Monday. No, listen, I, 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 would, I would say this. We, we do record it and we do post it on our Zoom um, on, on our on a YouTube, the Zoom recording is posted on our YouTube account, and also we put it up, up on our website too. So I wouldn't want to uh, interfere with your wife's uh, prerogative to have your undivided attention on your day off. But um, well, it, well, it will be a I very, no very interesting topic. And obviously, I have no doubt she's listening in right now, and uh, yeah. we'll be very glad to hear that it's a recorded um, session. Um, I, I think I'll be forced to listen yes. to it on Tuesday morning. But it, but it, it, it will be. It is very interesting. It is very topical, uh, and really, it, it is something which we believe and which you will hear. Uh, we, the South African public, very much will be the deciding factor in this, for one way or another. And it is so, so important, therefore, that we stay informed. And that's why we encourage people to always go to our website and sign up for our newsletters. And we'll send you alerts. We don't spam you, by the way. You normally get about a every sort of like maybe. 
12 weeks, you'll get uh, an update from us. If there's an urgent thing, like, for example, the Papuda Amendment Bill, then we'll send you an alert. But we don't spam you, but we want you to be informed. And we want to be able to put the information and the tools in your hand so that you can engage in the democratic process, because it is a numbers game. And the more people who actually understand what's going on and know when and where to push back and how to push back when they see things coming that are going to erode their religious freedom rights, that is when we need to be ready. And if I think we do that, then we will continue to live in a wonderful society where, of course, we do also celebrate very much our diversity. Uh, that is the joy of our constitution. Excellent. Well, brother, thank you so much for the introductory uh, to this morning's show. Always enjoy speaking to you. I love the work that you do and trust that you enjoy the rest of your weekend. God bless. Well, folk, we are moving on uh, this morning to a discussion about the rise and the fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill is, or was, should I rather say, a, a church in the American city of Seattle. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that city because even the fact that a huge mega church of this nature rose up in a city which is largely characterized by maybe postmodern kind of American thought uh, was astounding to say the least. Um, but the, the, the story of the church and its meteoric rise to fame um, was also met with a corresponding fall, a meteoric fall um, and collapse, uh, calamity kind of struck. And uh, this morning, together with uh, my friend Andrew uh, from God First, uh, which is another church in Benoni, uh, we're going to talk through some of what a trending podcast, uh, which has been produced by Christianity Today, has been revealing about, uh, about Mars Hill. Um, and so that conversation I'm hoping will be fruitful for you to listen to, not so much because we're going to take a baseball bat and apply it to anybody's head, um, but because the topics that have been raised by the podcast are so relevant to so many churches, um, even in South Africa. And so as far as we're able to do, as far as we're able, I think we're going to be talking about the issues that have been raised in the podcast um, and some of the cautionary tales uh, that we've heard as we've been going through this. Even as we kind of now enter into a period of the show where I am looking forward to engaging and chatting to you, I do want to say hi uh, to various people who have uh, commented um, already. Uh, Robert and Melvin and Gay and Penny, long-time listeners. In fact, all four of those are long-time listeners. It's good to have you on the show. Um, it's good to have you uh, speaking to us. Uh, Penny particularly says, good morning, Mark and Tepo. Uh, can't listen today because I'm on my way out to my cousin's wedding. Uh, have a very good and blessed weekend. Penny, I hope that you enjoy your cousin's wedding. Weddings and marriage are a gift of God to humanity. I hope that it is a wonderful celebration. Um, although this morning I'm not joined by Tepo, I'm joined by Andrew Butterworth. Andrew, I'm going to give you the opportunity, brother, to uh, introduce yourself and uh, introduce the church that you represent um, in terms of the church that you pastor and maybe begin the kind of conversation in terms of why is Mars Hill important? Why are we even talking about Mark Driscoll? All of this happened six, seven years ago. And um, why is it trending even today? Cool. Well, thanks, Mark. It's pretty nice to be here. Um, yes, I'm at God First Church just down the road, but we've also just launched into Boxburg. So we now straddle the, 
the two cities in the East Rand. So we've got two congregations and we did that during lockdown and thought it's good just to, to press forward for the kingdom of God and not just be on the defensive just because we're in lockdown and pandemics and stuff like that. So that's where we're at. Um, but in terms of the Mars Hill podcast, it was something I wasn't really that keen to listen to originally. I thought, well, you know, these things can just be a bit gossipy and just looking at what's happened. But it, it really has taken the internet by storm. And everywhere I go on Christian blogs and stuff, you seem to see people commenting about it. So I thought, well, it's worth, actually, I think you actually persuaded me to say it's really well done. Have a listen. And, um, I was reminded a while back that, um, we, we study history so we don't make the same mistakes. And even there's this recent history, I mean, it, Mars Hill Church existed from 1996 to 20, I think it was 14. Um, so almost a period of 20 years or so. Um, and a lot's happened since then, but it's still, it's useful to learn from what, what the, the good things they did and uh, the not so good things. And uh, the, the podcast is fairly fair at trying to be neutral and look at this from a, an, a historian a historian's view of things and just saying, what can we learn from this? Um, and it's representative of a lot of the trends in Christianity today around sort of um, celebrity pastors, maybe mega churches have been on the rise for 30, 40 years. You know, all those things that are prominent in South Africa really as well. We, we have, we've got our mega churches, we've got our celebrity pastors as well. So it's good just to have a look at this and just see um, the rise and the fall of this yeah, I, I mean, the crazy thing for me is I've been listening to the podcast hasn't so much been that it's telling a story and it's telling the story really well. I mean, it's incredibly well produced, but it hasn't just been that it's telling the story of some church 20,000 kilometers or 30,000 kilometers away um, that's separated from me geographically and culturally and, you know, like without any connection. I, I think many of the Many of the, the the strands of storytelling have deeply resonated with me because I actually see them happening even on South African shores, even in churches that are far smaller uh, than what Mars Hill ended up blooming to. I, I'm, I'm wondering, um, and I, I may, maybe I'll start and then pass the baton back to you, um, but, but what has been your engagement with the Mark Driscoll story and with the Mars Hill story? I mean, were you a like a like a person who watched them from the outside um what has been your interactions with uh, either mark or with the church um for myself i can say when i came into full-time ministry at crystal park um a couple of guys were on the radar um a couple of guys that that were kind of like trending and seemed very culturally relevant um and i started listening to mark driscoll probably before I came into full-time ministry, and I certainly was listening to him when I arrived here at Crystal Park, I found his sermons, and I've listened to many, um, I found his sermons to be um, very relevant, like he was he was aiming at people's hearts, and not their heads. Um, although um, I found him a, a fair uh, expositor of God's Word, he clearly did his homework. Um, I've read um, sermon series of his um, through a number of books of the Bible, um, and I can tell you that he's in all likelihood reading many of the same commentators that I'm reading. Um, but he brought something fresh. He brought something really unique to the table, something kind of culturally odd in my circles anyway, um, which was very helpful for me to listen to because it, it, gave, me, it gave me different arrows in my quiver uh, that I could aim at the hearts of my people. 
um, I actually failed to identify any problems with Driscoll um, up until the time that he stepped down from ministry. I think the day before he stepped down from ministry, I'm on a, I'm on a very conservative um, Facebook group. Um, and a day before he stepped down from ministry, one of the, one of the guys, a, a friend of mine on the West Rand, had been waving a red flag regarding Driscoll for months. Um, he, he's very influenced by MacArthur, and MacArthur had raised a red flag. And uh, he had been saying, hang on, wait, there, there's problems here, stay away, don't, don't promote the guy. And I can even remember the day before Driscoll stepped down from ministry, I was like, ah, you know, there's two sides to the story. I'm fairly certain that that, that all is not as meets the eye. Um, and I defended him like as the ship was sinking, um, you know, just so really um, disappointed maybe by, by some lack of discernment on my side at the time or maybe lack of exposure to some of what was going on, you know, um, you know, the guide produced so much by that stage, many books, many sermons, um, and maybe I wasn't listening to the stuff that just clearly set him apart uh, or, or raised the flags uh, that I should have been uh, that I should have been looking to. In terms of yourself, uh, exposure to Driscoll, exposure to Mars Hill, or Acts twenty nine, I guess uh, is part of the equation. So it was a long time back, really. I remember I was living in Manchester and. Um, I was enjoying, I was looking at communi- good communicators um, and just to learn about communication. That's an element of preaching. And I mm. remember listening to a LA pastor called Erwin McManus and I was enjoying that. And I spoke to my pastor in Manchester and he said, no, someone better to listen to. Yes. And he said, he said, you've got to read this book called Confessions of a Rever- Reformational Rev. Reformational Rev. It was a strange title, yeah. but it was a hilarious book. I don't know if you've read it, Mark. No, it's, no, I haven't. It, it, but he tells his story of planning a church in a city where there's more dogs than people. He often repeats these, these little stories and he, and about calling men to discipleship. And he, it's just full of hilarious sort of stuff that happened. And you really got into the, the life of the guy and thought, I want to learn from this guy because he, he, he had a big voice. I mean, he was massive in the military. He had a way of speaking to men to, to get them to stand up and listen and um, present the gospel in a way that was meaningful in a culture of, of, of masculinity. You know, at the time, you know, most of the worldwide church, it was more women in churches than men. And, he, and Mark sort of taught a way of saying, hey, we've got to reach men uh, and focus on men, which was something I hadn't really heard of before. I just, I grew up in an Anglican church where it was quite, um, a lot of the, the men weren't there. There was, there was more women than men, and I, I, I resonated with that. I mean, he had mm-hmm. some turns of phrases. I mean, he talked about, you know, he grew up in the Catholic Church, and he said, look, I don't want to follow the guy in the dress. <laughs> <laughs> I did that before. Yeah. Which is funny, but it's a little irreverent. But I can see that, you know, his, how his mind was thinking, saying, well, actually, if you want to aspire, you know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But if you've got the guy at the front and he's, he's wearing these gowns and robes, it's very Dis- disconnecting to, to think, well, I want to be like that person, you know. So uh, I, I know right now we have a number of Anglican pastors that are listening in. Um, a shout out goes to folk in Port Elizabeth that are tuning in right now. Um, Baptists do giggle about Anglicans wearing dresses from time to time. Um, but, but I do think that Mark brought a unique flavor to the conversation. He, he did move the conversation away from from the feminization of the church, which, I mean, we do even see in a South African context, 
um, and did bring the church uh, more squarely and the responsibility for worship, the responsibility for teaching, headship and discussion, um, kind of back into a space where, where men could take a role within the context of local churches. Um, you know, uh, very interesting for me is um, even as I've um, uh, recently read um, some commentary that Mark had made on um, on the book of Ecclesiastes, I, I preached through that for, for two years, and Mark had also preached through it and commented through it, and I'd read um, some of his writings. Um, I found myself from the pulpit um, uh, once or twice quoting something which he had said because it was so excellent but quoting it as as one commentator says, such and such and such and such. I, I mean, I would do the same with maybe like William Barclay or, <laughs> you know, some of the other guys who, um, uh, you, you know, kind of... People you weren't in, so proud of quoting, is that well, right? Well, for example, and he has another Anglican, like N.T. Wright, um, yeah. his work in the book of Colossians is actually excellent. Um, he does some work in terms of the linguistics of uh, the Greek language, which talks about kind of the poetic... Um, phrases which are coming through and it's very Hebraic and, and he makes connections that I'd never seen ever before and I hadn't seen it in the commentators that I was reading either and I, I mean like I do try and read a lot of commentary um, before Sunday um, and so I, I like to I mean I, I can't claim it as as my invention I can't claim it as uh, but but NT right is not somebody that I'd want to steer my people to and um, for a host of reasons but Pauline principle um, or perspective being, being the key. Um, and so I would, you know, maybe reference something he said as one commentator has said, and then invariably I would write to the person and say, thank you so much for the work that you did on this section. Um, and I did that with Mark. And look, I, I recognize that the guy is even now in another large church um, and probably as a team of people that respond uh, to guys that uh, send in one line thank you messages. Um, but I did get a message back um, to say, you know, thank you for making the message and God be glorified uh, as you serve him uh, or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing now. That's very nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so, and so the, the reality is you've got this kind of schizophrenic relationship with a, with, with a guy like this. You, you realize that there are massive skeletons in the closet and yet you realize that the guy's made a contribution. Some of it is valuable um, to the church. And then you start <laughs> listening um, to a podcast like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And then you kind of put down a question mark and you say, well, have I heard the whole side of the story? Um, is this the definitive story? Because, I, I mean, I do recognize that storytellers also bring their own perspective um, to the to the party. I, I mean, particularly as they were talking about complementarianism, I, I thought maybe the storyteller had an egalitarian um conversation that they were wanting to push or direction that they were wanting to push. Um, you know, I was a little bit confused when they were talking about some of the charismatic. I couldn't quite pinpoint uh, where the narrator was sitting in terms of their own view, but I thought it interesting that they brought in someone like Sam Storms to to kind of continue the conversation. And we're going to get to each one of those episodes shortly. But maybe the point is that storytellers do bring their perspective to the party as they're telling the story. I mean, we even see that in the Gospels, right? I mean, you know, Matthew tells a story. It seems to be told, although I had a fascinating conversation with a, a guy that's doing his doctoral research on, on a possible Greco-Roman kingship 
um, flavor to the to the book of Matthew. Um, but but Matthew seems to be told from a Jewish perspective. Um, you know, Luke as being the chronologer and and, and telling things quite sequentially. Um, John is just like mind-blowingly theological, and Mark seems quite intent on getting through the content, like immediately going from chapters one, 16 done. chapters, boom, 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 <laughs> yeah. this is all that the Greeks want to hear. Well, let's go with 15 chapters, depending on which text yeah, uh, sure. uh, you hold as source. But, but, but where I'm going with this is that the storyteller brings their perspective to the telling of the story and compiles the content um, to tell the story that they're wanting to tell. I, I don't know if you had an opportunity, but I listened to a Mark Dever interview, and it couldn't have been more than a few years ago, that he did with, uh, the interviewer was Carrie Newhart, Newhart, uh, I think it was, uh, he has a leadership podcast, and and Mark told the story of him leaving Mark, Mars Hill, and I found it interesting, fascinating, just the complexity of his story, and the kinds of pressure that the guy was on, I mean, I, I, I pastor a church of 200 people, and I promise you, it is complex shepherding, 200 people. The guy was was shepherding like 20,000 plus plus. I mean, they were aiming for 50,000, and we'll talk about how ridiculous aiming for numbers is a little bit later. I but, think they got around 15,000 or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was just a massive organization, and then there was external pressures of media and focus and and all kinds of lobby groups that had kind of um, that had kind of uh, started to engage with him and uh, uh, and chop off his knees. I, I just I just found. I found the other side of the story interesting to listen to. Um, but for the purpose of today, we, we're talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill content. Maybe just introduce it. What, what kind of flavor does this podcast take? Is it a podcast that you'd recommend to others to listen? Um, yeah, just, just kind of describe it so that listeners who haven't engaged with the content have an idea. So it's an hour hour long podcast. It's very well produced. I mean, I think, I think it's breaking ground in there as a podcast because of its Excellency, I mean, it's done like a lot of series now. So they, they rather than having the intro sort of um, sort of jingle, they go straight into something engaging, like a, 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 a clip quote, and they'll give a comment. And, and then only later, after a few minutes, once you engage, they start the the uh, the intro sequence. And that, it's quite you know segmented with adverts and sponsors and things. So I mean, I just fast forward those myself, but. Um, it, it's it's very well done. I think on ten episodes now they're doing one every two weeks. He says it's purely because the volume of stuff they have to get through to do it well is mean that it's on a two weekly cycle. So the probably it should be another one coming out today actually. Um, but uh, I just really enjoyed just um, reminiscing a bit because I was I, I, I grew up through that era a bit of um, and just tracking with Mark Driscoll. I mean, it, and it's a fascinating topic because I mean the guy. Not only founded a megachurch that that uh, went went on to the global scene, but he, he was a founder of the Gospel Coalition. He founded Acts 29 with somebody else. And Acts 29 is a hugely successful network that continues to, to this day, planting reformed conservative evangelical churches. And um, so his, his legacy, even though it's a bit sort of um, the Mars Hill element is is quite um, not so great in, his, in the actual... You know the, the church sort of it sort of melted down, and so each each campus became its own church. So there are churches today that carry on under the uh, from planting out that would never have been there in in in, in Seattle City. But um, yeah, it's, it's a shame that, that we're looking back now and seeing what went wrong when 
there's also there's a lot of what went well, mm. you know, uh, particularly with Acts 29, I think. And I, I mean, just talking about those those networks, those are important networks, even in, even in the South African scene, the Gospel Coalition, um, uh, a run out of Christchurch in in Midrand, yeah. Martin Morrison, uh, very involved there. Conrad and Bewe actually from Zambia, and being very keenly involved in the Gospel Coalition and recognizing that that Mark had played an influence uh, in terms of pushing that forward um, uh, ten and fifteen years ago. Uh, Acts twenty nine. I mean, when I think of you know friends in ministry um, and church planting as a movement. Um, even in Kharteng, I, I look at, at at a massive move. Um, guys like Sichle um, involved, I'm fairly certain, in Acts 29, um, and, and a number of other people. Uh, he's doing a plant in Greenstone area, uh, and we have, um, I was going to say lost, but in actual fact, we released um, some of our members that were in that area uh, to that church plant, and I know Sichle and I know the guys that he's, that he's been partnering with in order to get the, the plant off the ground, uh, you know, good guy, and I trust it's going to be a great church. Um, yeah, Acts 29, very active in the Gauteng scene uh, all around the place. And, and so, yeah, sure, legacy and some of it is positive, but some of it is decidingly negative. And so, yeah, I, I you mean, can't escape that really. yeah, well, you can't escape that. And so, so may, maybe let, let's, let's start to talk about the various different e- episodes and, and lift some of the learnings that, mm. that you got, some of the observations that you got. And we will bring in um, comments and observations that people are making on the outside. Uh, we will bring those into the conversation as well. Maybe just one, one last time, give you guys the, the engagements and how you can interact with us. Teresa, I do see your question already. And in fact, it's relevant. And thank you so much for sending it in. Um, folk, if you want to comment on what we are talking about this morning, uh, you can do so on Facebook. We're currently live streaming to crystalparkbaptistchurch.co.za. No, wait, that's our, <laughs> that's our website. <laughs> we are live streaming uh, this, uh, uh, this episode to Crystal Park Baptist Church, which is our Facebook page, as well as Pastor Mark Penrith, which is my Facebook page, um, as well as Radio Pulpit Radio Console, which is the Radio Pulpit Radio Console Facebook page. You can just comment below. I see those comments right here as we're talking. Uh, you can also uh, send in voice notes, and like Teresa has a three-point question um, uh, on WhatsApp and Telegram. The telephone number is both on the stream. If you go to the stream on Facebook, you can see all of these contact details. Um, but the number is 082-657-2729. If you're a twit, guys, I don't even know if the tweet universe listens to radio because I can't actually remember getting a tweet but at 657am would be the handle to engage on I'd love to see if tweet actually comes through to me um, it might be that my system isn't picking them up and you've been commenting every single week in which case good on you and I look forward to seeing them in the future um, and if you'd like to phone in and talk uh, live on air the telephone number for the studio is 012-334-1322 which reminds me making sure that the lights stay on today is our partner in crime, Vissi. He is at home base, um, taking care of all the matters, tech and sound related. Uh, so glad that I get to uh, serve together with you, ba- uh, Bud. And um, and maybe just to say that the intro song that was playing as the show started was Celebrate by Janine Krobler. That was what we listened to uh, as we came into the show this morning. But we are really looking forward to your conversations and uh, and and whatnot. Um, as we come to episode one, Who Killed Mars Hill, uh, which is the kind of provocative title, 
Um, it kind of intros by just talking about the tremendous growth of the ministry of Mars Hill, uh, and then it introduces the implosion with the resignation of its lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. Um, and then it goes about describing why Driscoll resonated <laughs> with the culture around him. Um, and it, uh, you know, what, one of the items which I highlighted just in terms of that conversation uh, was how he spoke in a way which disenfranchised cultural Christian, Christians um, felt as if it resonated with them. Um, he, he, he spoke in a way which, which many who had come to faith or who were in the faith, and yet as they looked at the churches around them, um, saw maybe, maybe kind of congregations which represented them in terms of their style and their approach in absolutely no way. I, I wonder if maybe you want to talk about this. I, I know in terms of distinctives at God First, you guys would say, Reformed, you guys would say charismatic, and you guys would say missional, which is kind of the sweet spot in terms of the the Mars Hill conversation. Uh, and uh, yeah, any anything to say regarding that? It's quite interesting because we actually were traditionally a Reformed and charismatic, and it was the influence of Driscoll that brought about us the the missional element. Mm. He was actually invited to the network we were part of, it's called New Frontiers, and that about eight hundred churches around the world. And he was the, the keynote speaker one year, and I went to that conference in Brighton, the UK. And uh, one of the things he said to us is that you're not very missional as a movement. And we were like, what does that even mean? And he says, well, look around you. You all look look the same. You're all in Czech shirts, chinos, Caucasians. You know, where are the people with tattoos? Where are the people from different subsets of society? And that that took the whole movement really on a journey of saying, actually, we need to look at not being too monocultural, monochrome in our expression of church. And actually saying, well, yeah, we believe in evangelism, but we also believe in creating... Um, a church that's contextualized. I mean, I quoted uh, Lesbian Newbigin and and the whole concept of contextualizing to the culture you're in is so important. And and he, he Mark, was from Seattle. Now, Seattle was the home of um, Nirvana. If you think about it, it was like this alternative punk rock element, but also big business. He had Seattle was where Microsoft started. It was where Amazon started. And so they had this culture of big readers because Amazon started in a city where people bought books so they're incredibly intellectual but also a bit sort of anti stick it to the man sort of vibe anti-establishment anti-establishment but intellectual and that was the culture that Mark planted into so he took on that uh, persona of of preaching intellectually but doing it in a way that was anti-establishment and could resonate with the feeling of the city which we thought was fascinating. So, so maybe just to kind of like pull it back a bit, because because obviously I kind of come at this from a from a slightly different angle, and I want to put that on the table. You know, you and I are really good friends. I mean, we pretty much talk every single day on WhatsApp. Uh, we meet together regularly. Um, we've kind of chatted through these kinds of things, and so like no surprises. Um, but if you had to kind of describe me on any given Sunday, it would be maybe not so much a check shirt, maybe a single tone, <laughs> solid color with chinos um, and that kind of quintessential um, bland um, uh, kind of Baptist. Um, I've been to your services. You've been to mine. We've tried to strike a certain feel at Crystal Park. And, and I'm wondering, 
I'm just wondering if this actually translates well to a South African environment. I, I mean, I've been to your services, kind of like, you know, very kind of trendy, uh, exposed brickwork on, on your walls in a really cool way with a little bit of whitewash, maybe uh, kind of like some wood and uh, darkened colors, really cool stage um, and, and, a, and, a, and quite a almost kind of a grungy mix of people uh, in terms of leading worship and stuff. If you came to Crystal Park on any given Sunday, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say the opposite of God first, um, because in actual fact, many of our elements of worship actually um, relate one-to-one with you guys. Um, in actual fact, I mean, over the years, you, we, we've spoken so much about how we do church, and there's so much synergy in terms of, in terms of what we're actually doing on any given Sunday. Um, but certainly, we try and strike a, a tone that is maybe embracing of of all things to all men, um, you know, kind of like a, as wide a segment of the population as possible. Do you think there is place in the South African scene, the South African church, for these very, um, uh, let's say, uh, kind of like a, a, a more, I, I don't even know what I'm, what, what I'm thinking as I ask the question, but kind of like this either trendy church or, um, uh, or very, kind of church which, is, which has been narrowed to talk in a very specific way to a very specific audience. But it, it's interesting because um, through the podcast, they talk about um, different mega churches, and one of them they talk about is um, the, uh, I've forgotten the name actually of the, of the, of the church, but um, the guy did the inauguration of Obama. He, he preached and. Um, uh, was it Rick Warren? Rick Warren, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so Rick yeah. Warren typed um, the place he's in, he, he called him something Sam and he had this type of a person he was trying to attract yes. the church yeah. and he, yeah. he went door to door and he started trying to find what people's objections persona. and he had a creative persona from a marketing point of view and targeted this Saddleback Sam was the name yeah. yeah. so they had this person they were targeting and it, what's interesting is you're, you're saying as you go narrow is there a place for that well interestingly as you go narrow you actually go broad so let me give you an example so Nike typically target a 25-year-old male or female sporty person. Mm. But because they target that so, person... So not, not me, short, fat, bald, and 45. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you're the sort of person... Well, not exactly. Come on, I'm not fat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Take okay. that back right now. I was, just, I was going with the flow. I, you, you made the statement, so I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. But, but that sort of person, the 50-year-old, will want to aspire to be 25-year-old and will buy Nike stuff to look good when they're playing sport. And so by narrowing the focus on who you're targeting, you actually broaden the perspective. So that, their critique was that some, a lot of churches don't have a focus and therefore they reach nobody because it doesn't suit anyone. Whereas at least, at least if you target and suit somebody, you, you, you then have you, something to go for. So that, that seemed to work for them in, in Mars Hill. Cause, and, and Driscoll's quite wise. You'd say, look, in, in New York, I wouldn't do this. Look at Tim Keller. He was mm. a big fan of Tim Keller at the time. He'd say, Tim Keller has four-part harmonies on his hymn sheet. New York is an intellectual but a classical musical culture. Yes. So they had classical music in the morning and then jazz um, musicians in the evening at their church. And, and Driscoll says, look, in our culture, with a Nirvana sort of punk rock, so, so our worship style will change according to the people we're trying to reach. He said, even so, I think he said, I don't even like the, the style of music that we do, but it's not about me. It's about doing music in a way that helps people worship God. And so it's, it's fascinating sort of even just talking through the the, the, the thinking that went on, whether you, you, you buy into it or not, it, it's just interesting to see 
the level of thought they went to to say, how can we do church in a way that is meaningful for people who don't normally go to church? Hmm. You know, uh, even as I'm even as I'm listening to you, I, I do realize that so much of what went right at uh, Mars Hill was because of uh, an immense intentionality on the part of both the leadership team as well as with the creatives that they engaged with. Uh, and I do think that they, you know, if there's if there's a positive learning for me to take out of their story is just um, that intentionality I don't think is anti-Christ, it's not anti-gospel, and it's not anti-God. I think it glorifies God when we go about church in very intentional ways. And God certainly did use that in order to um, in order to extend his glory, make himself known, and bring in sons and daughters of the faith. Um, many people testify uh, to saving faith uh, under that ministry. And then not just intentionality, but but also uh, the use of creatives. Uh, and I mean, we'll see that as we go through further episodes. Uh, we're going to be coming back after the break and maybe just talking a little bit about um, relational fallout and this idea of elevating leaders whose uh, charisma um, whose competencies uh, outpace their uh, character. Um, but we do need to go out to a break now. We've got advertisers and we are going to be listening to a song. It is, and I'm looking at this, I think it's Set Our Hearts on You by Stella. We'll be listening to that. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Well, folk, it is good to be back with you for the second hour of our discussion, Table Talk with myself, Mark Penrith. This morning, I'm joined by my friend and partner in crime, Andrew Butterworth. We are from the East Rand. Benoni is our city. I serve at Crystal Park Baptist Church. Benoni, Andrew serves at a church literally just down the road across the hill and uh, a couple of left corners away uh, called Godfest. Uh, East Strand, and uh, also I guess you could say Godfirst Boxburg. Are you guys the branding as Godfirst East Strand and Godfirst Boxburg? Well, just... Godfirst East Strand is a church, and then Godfirst Boxburg's the congregation in Boxburg, and Godfirst Benoni's the congregation in Benoni. Okay, cool. Well, either way, it's uh, good to be joined by you this morning. We are chatting about a podcast that um, we have been listening to together, myself and Andrew. We've been talking about it. Uh, as we've been going through it over the last number of weeks uh, called The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill. Um, it is produced by Christianity Today. If you Google it, it'll definitely come up. Um, it's produced, written, and edited by a man named Mike Cosper. And, uh, I mean, it's really excellent. Uh, just so nice. well done. Uh, great storytelling. Great, uh, uh, great uh, what's it, investigative journalism. And the first time that I've seen this kind of level of quality um, attached to Christian podcasting. I've, I've thoroughly loved it. I look forward to each episode. There have been one or two episodes that I thought were better than others, um, but just generally it's been really, really good. Um, before the break, uh, I said that when we came back, we'd start to talk about just some of the massive problems uh, that are easy to identify in terms of the Mars Hill story. And Teresa, a long-time listener, who always asks his questions in three parts. I'm only going to reference one part today. It says, if believers today are in the same kind of setup as Mars Hill, won't they be too petrified to do anything about it? How should they be encouraged? And Teresa, I think uh, as we talk through a couple of episodes of the podcast, I think you're going to discover um, that it's really 
complex. Um, the Mars Hill story, I don't think one was one where people stuck around because they were too petrified to leave. I think it was they stuck around because they were sheep <laughs> that were blinded uh, to the reality in front of them. At least that would be my evaluation of, of what was going on. But maybe, Andrew, just, just to ask you, um, you know, in terms of the show notes that I was reading um, previously that I'm just pulling up in front of me now, one of the things that's, that, that they talk about was in episode one was relational fallout um, as simply just being part of the job. I mean, any kind of comments regarding that um, as, we, as we begin to talk about episode one or as we draw to a conclusion on episode one? I mean, one of the big things they talked about was the turnover of staff and the Washington State, where, where Seattle's based, has a very um, uh, easy-to-fire policy, unlike South Africa, where you know, to fire anyone in South Africa is a long process. There, it's the reverse. It's very easy to fire people. And so they, they seem to fire a lot of people. Mark Hill boasted, uh, sorry, Mark Driscoll boasted even about it, saying there's a bus you've got to get on, and uh, and if you're not online, we chuck you off the bus, and there's a pile of bodies at the, the back of the bus. That, that was him explaining his him firing people. You know, the the, yeah. the bodies were people that were expelled from the church because they weren't aligned, and he thought that was a good thing. And, and, and maybe just to point out that that isn't a good thing. I, I mean, that's just <laughs> that's absolute rubbish. The truth is that the church is the bride of Christ. It's constituted by believers who who come together. Um, for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the glorification of Jesus Christ. And they come together to, to enact the one another's, you know, to love one another and, and serve one another and look out for one another's good. The idea that we'd get all excited and goosebumpy because we've thrown people under the bus is just, it's kind of abhorrent. I mean, this would be, this would be this, this would be like a massive red flag. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and majorly problematic, just even the arrogance um, of, of that statement. And I think it's part of a bigger, broader culture in, in America. One of the things I don't follow with the, or track with the American church is this over-corporate identity. You know, you've got a board of elders that act like a board of directors. You've got a, quite a the, the senior pastor, the CEO. You've got quite a corporate way of, of working. And I, I just I just don't think that's... That, that fits with God's church. I, I love the metaphors and scripture of church being a family and church. I mean, there is church being an army and things like that. I just, there's a danger of being overly corporate in the way you go about things. And, and Driscoll had a phrase, he said, a church is not a business, but it should be run better than a business because the outcome is more important. And, and I got what he's saying. He wants to saying we'll be efficient and stuff. But I, I, I went there for two weeks. I had the privilege of just hanging out and being there and, I think people were just um, were burning out and they were working a long time and, and they get fired just like that and then have to find a new job and they'd be suddenly, this is their church. This is the thing they invest their time into. They got saved in this church and suddenly the church was chucking them on the street. Yeah. So, so look, I mean, neither you nor I would, would say, would, would talk against the need for pastors, the need for people that are in ministry to be competent. Like, uh, I think of the staff at Crystal Park. We have, um, we have uh, Gogo Miriam and we have uh, Tepo. Um, we have myself. Each one of us are competent to the, to the, to the skill level in terms of how we've been hired. Um, Gogo Miriam is an auxiliary social worker. She works with uh, kids in our school programs. Um, Tepo is... Um, uh, he's a pastoral uh, assistant with an honors degree in theology and um, and incredible levels of com competency, you know, entrepreneurial mm. to the hilt. 
Um, the, the reality is my role requires a certain level of competence, uh, ability to rightly divide God's word, ability to preach, ability to do some basic HR, some basic communication, um, you know, know how to change light bulbs because, I mean, let's face it, in a small church, the pastor does everything. But, but there is a need for competency. But what I think one sees as a danger uh, in these large American churches is sometimes competency trumps character. In other words, the character of the man isn't the necessary qualification for ministry, but his competency first, his ability to draw a crowd, his ability to speak to a crowd, his ability to razzle-dazzle and create the numbers and the hype that the church wants in order to grow or in order to, you know, demonstrate some kind of view to a watching world. Whereas in Scripture, and right now I'm thinking of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and I'm thinking of Titus chapter 1, along with other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, the competency of the New Testament pastor isn't undermined, but the weight seems to rest on his character over and over again. I mean, any thoughts as you as you listen to, uh, to the episodes in terms of that conversation? Anything that you want to add? Sure. I mean, the, the, the big issue with the with um, Mark Driscoll's character was this um, this almost consolidation of power and abuse of position. That's the accusation made through the podcast, overtly yes. and um, and subtly throughout the, the podcast. Which it it's something that if you're not you weren't there, it's difficult for you to make a definitive statement on. Yes. But there was a lot of people giving evidence. I mean, you, you, you see the letters in the public domain from the previous elders, nine elders, 21 elders. All the, you see people like Paul David Tripp saying this was a, uh, a terrible uh, ministry environment to be in. And he was on the and board I mean, of if, accountability. If yeah. says something, I mean, that guy is just a gift to the church. He really is such a clear thinker and such a, 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 a man of of noble character every time I've heard him speak every time I've, I've heard I mean I've read um, I, my wife is currently reading a book that he wrote Dangerous Calling and uh, just observing over and over again just how how absolutely to the heart he writes um, if, if a guy like Tripp is saying hey listen yeah there's a major question mark over the toxic environment that I'm seeing here and I can't actually work Mm. <laughs> with with this church or with Mark, I, I can't I can't be involved in this. Then you know you've got a serious problem on your hands. Yeah, you'd you'd think. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be that conclusion. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the second episode because I think yeah, it starts getting really interesting and mm. lots of connections to the South African church. So the second ex- episode was titled "Boomers, Big Short, and the Really Really Big Churches," and that's what it was about. It was about. Mm the church growth movement of the 1950s and then as it just kind of like grew and blossomed and exploded in the States, um, it spoke about the history of that movement. It spoke about some of the key names in that movement, um, guys like Robert Schiller, guys like um, Bill Hybels, guys like Rick Warren. Now, I come from a very conservative background, right? The idea of church growth is almost uh, 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 a swear word uh, amongst the kind of crowd that I run in. You know, the, the, this idea that that growth could be on your metrics of intent um, as you go about doing church is like you, you're now taking responsibility which really belongs to God, kind of in a mm. Acts 2, 47 way God added to their number those who are being saved. Um, but I think the storyteller, I think the narrator, the narrative, um, 
just is absolutely fascinating. Talking about Robert Schiller and the way that he hooked into that kind of post-war optimism and self-esteem and, and, and built towards this idea of church being very practically relevant to people in terms of building them up and not kind of pressing them down and then bridging across to the stories of Bill Hybels I, I was interested that they that they didn't really go down the path of just talking about about how he has been brought into disrepute mm-hmm. um, over some immensely questionable things which happened at now I don't even know what, what church he represents Willow Creek right yeah, yeah. Um, and just just some of the mess that's been left in the legacy of, of what's happened there um, which in some ways similar in, uh, not similar in accusation, but similar in the way it worked out uh, to some of the things that we see at Mars Hill. Um, But then Rick Warren and his propensity for numbers and statistics and massive growth. Uh, We spoke about personas earlier Mm -hmm. on and just how these things happen. And this this kind of philosophy of franchising the local church um, in the States um, to create these homogenous congregational cultures and such. How do you see some of those things reflected in the South African church? Does everything that happens in America end up happening in South Africa? Or does things that happen in America sometimes happen in South Africa in slightly different ways? Um, are we getting this better than them? Are we doing this worse than them? Um, I, you know, I just think of the, this particular conversation was, was around satellite um, congregations, was around uh, this distributed model of churches. And whilst I don't think the narrator um, took a dim view um, of these things, I, I think certainly that was the train uh, that the listener would, would naturally kind of step off at the station um, in terms of just concerns around the model of church. Now, you are multi, a multi-campus uh, church. Uh, I know, you know, e- even Crystal Park, as we've looked at the churches around us and the need um, that some churches have had in the past for partnership, uh, we certainly have at least considered and thought through what campus ministry might look like. Uh, any, any thoughts on these things as you think of episode two? Well, certainly what happens in America does influence the rest of the world. And the, in America, the multi-campus church is the norm now. It's, I mean, there's probably still a lot of small little little churches that don't do that but um it, it is just fairly no it's not even a conversation anymore it's just this is what it is and it's interesting to look at the different models so we at god first because obviously god first started um you know 10 12 years back and it was starting in bryson rather than where we are here our, our church actually is a result of doing multi-campus multi-site church so the god first east Rand was originally a site of the god first Eight, there were eight sites in, at one time, and and then we transitioned into individual churches, and now we as an individual church have gone multi-campus. So it, it's interesting that um, we've been influenced definitely by that. But what we did in the early days, we followed the Driscoll model of having one person preach and then the video go to the different sites. But in the intervening years, we realized that seeing what's happened at Driscoll, seeing what's happened maybe with Willow Creek is you – you overemphasize the person on the video as the leader and the pastor, and and you get a dis, you get a bit of a celebrity culture. And and Tim Keller was very good at criticizing that. He said he didn't do he did multi campus, but they had three campuses in New York, but they never did video because mm. they said they want to raise local preachers. And for me personally, I, that resonates a lot better. And so we we won't do video. We'll in God first East Rand, we'll raise up local preaching teams and have local elders. That, in charge and 
but it's a great way to start new congregations. To, to be a church planter requires a lot of a, a toolkit. There's, you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to know about finance. You have to know about people. You have to be a self-starter. You have to, there's all this stuff, and it's very hard that the average person has that. Mm. But to start a congregation of an of a already established church, the bar is a lot lower administratively, and you can just be a better pastor and a better leader because your HR is covered, your payroll, all the admin, the, the setting is, is corporation and all this sort of the, the the stuff that you don't really necessarily want to do when you put your hand up to be a yeah. church planter. And the, the great thing is that can always transition into its own church eventually. Yes. It's sort of like but, a half step to church planting. So, so, so like, I mean, my own relationship with God first goes back about maybe 10 years, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not too sure, but um, before you arrived at God First Eastrand, uh, Malcolm Gammon was there and I was fast friends with him. We still engage and interact is back in the UK now and um, at the time when I first met Malcolm you guys uh, if I remember correctly um, it was either just post or it, or you were still doing a, a little bit of video um, uh, uh, showing videos of PJ who was a great expositor um, excellent communicator um, and I can remember engaging with Malcolm and just being really concerned this was the first time I'd ever come across this um, my mind was blown I just thought it was so odd one of the things that I've loved the most about your story at God First and my interactions with them, uh, with you, both from Malcolm and then as he handed the baton over to you and just the friendship that's developed with you, um, is how I've seen um, a, a genuine love for God's Word, a high view of God's Word, and even, I dare say, a, a, a shift, certainly from you know those days of video and multi-campus, um, the shift to firstly, uh, individual camp, those campuses became local churches. Um, I celebrated that together with you when that happened. Um, and then subsequently, uh, uh, at least perception from my side, uh, a move toward increasingly expository preaching, uh, which I've celebrated and enjoyed watching and, and certainly has been good in terms of my engagement uh, with yourself as you've helped me uh, work through expository preaching and just some of the, the kludginess of my own approaches to it. And, and, and we've kind of been had the opportunity of sharpening uh, one off the other. But, but with all of that celebration, probably the main advantage does come down to what Keller said and what you just said now. And that's the danger of this multi-campus mo model where there is a single preacher being distributed to all mm. kinds of campuses. And just this kind of um, this, this hand which gets taken off the tiller of the local church and, and gets given to one individual um, rather than a pastor who can love and care and nurture for his flock. And I do, I think of Rob and I, th I think of Rob almost as the quintessential pastor. Every engagement that I've had with him has been very positive and maybe just for the listener's sake, you know who I'm talking about. Um, but Rob is the guy that's spearheading the work into Boxburg uh, for God first. I'm um, just a man who's immensely pastoral, uh, a, a man who's got a heart for the people that he's serving. And just the disadvantage of taking that responsibility of pastoral oversight and then pulpit oversight away from a man and, and, and almost, and almost giving it to the, to the professional who's sitting, you know, 50 Ks away or 60 Ks away and has no actual tangible relationship with the people that he's preaching to, uh, has no ability to look at them in their eyes. I think that in some ways the, the shift and the move away from that is, is, must be largely positive. Have you, I mean, uh, any comments on that? Or uh, Look, I mean, at the time we were just experimenting and I think it's good to be experimental, but you've also got to work out what your values are and just think, I can only speak for us now in East Rand is that 
for us of value is um, that we, we don't want to create a celebrity culture. And so the way we, we stop that is we don't have uh, a mega pastors that have been videoed and sent out, you know, and want local local eldership teams running congregations. And those be the people that you go to for your weddings, your funerals, but also the people you go to to be taught the word and to have theological questions answered. I think it's a very healthy thing. And uh, I think just the, the journey we've been on is learning from, say, the Kellers versus the Driscoll. We saw what went wrong there and thought, mm, okay, let's, let's, let's yeah. transition. Because the idea was, it was quite a good idea originally. It was like, if someone's got an incredible preaching gift, you can leverage that preaching gift to start a congregation that you wouldn't normally have started. Yes. But it's just, it, it, it with Driscoll, it retained as it, it never transitioned to, yes. to, to local preachers much. Yeah. And, it, and even a lot of these mega churches in South Africa, what they do is they don't get local preachers to replace them. When they go on holiday or they, they'll get in a, a person from overseas. A gun. <laughs> so that the congregation don't um, latch onto them. They want the, the power almost or the, the, the disconnect ability. between the man at the front and the people in the pews. They, they want the people to latch to them rather than having a number two or number three or number four in their preaching team and it being, a, oh, we, we like this pastor and this pastor and this pastor. It's, in my previous church, we had someone join from, from Rivers and they said to us, um, why don't you have someone, the same person preaching every week? It's a bit disconcerting to have these different people preaching. We were like, well, we believe in plural eldership and mm. we want our elders to be teachers and yeah, it is a bit different to what you've come from, yeah. but we think it's a good thing. Yeah. Hey, I, I mean, Crystal Park has the same philosophy of ministry. And you and I have been talking, mm-hmm. have been talking about this quite a bit in terms of our desire to have not just a plurality of, of elders, but, but also a demonstration of that plurality uh, in the pulpit. And so um, for myself, even from the beginning when I arrived at Crystal Park, I was preaching 75% of the sermons. Um, and when I arrived, there were no other people who were gifted to teach on a Sunday. And so I would preach for three weeks and then we'd ask one of the churches from our surrounds to send a relief preacher um, for that fourth week. Um, and sometimes, and sometimes there was good and sometimes that wasn't good like one or two of the students that we got at that at that stage in our in our ministry were, were just really odd um, but God was good to us and um, and and very quickly um, raised up men within the context of our local church that were able to teach and had character to teach as well um, and 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 then I started to hand over more and more of the of the teaching responsibility to others to such an extent where now I probably get to preach about sixty percent of the sermons um, uh, over a course over a twelve month period um, at Crystal Park and that certainly dipped lower particularly when we were running an evening service um, where I was doing very little of the preaching uh, in the evening but I, I, I do I, I I agree that that kind of decentralization of power. Um, is maybe one of the mechanisms um, to avoid the kind of fallout that we've seen um, both at Mars Hill but, but also locally um, amongst some churches where, where men are, are incredibly powerful and hungry for the power, not just of the pulpit, but the power that that gives them over men. Um, the, the, the third episode um, was, uh, really was, was interesting in that it presented a number of Mark's traits, which are absolutely positive. I clearly had a heart to help people who were wounded, clearly used his own personal means to assist folk. Uh, I mean, you know, he put people up at his house, allowed people to stay in his basement, mm. and clearly was 
was absolutely devoted um, to the church that he was serving, had grit and determination and a lot of, you know, personal willpower uh, in terms of uh, of moving the church forward. He, he seems to have been an incredibly caring man, particularly to people who are vulnerable um, and, and used his own um, his own means in order to take care of a number of um, a number of problems, but at the same time had an element of volatility about him, particularly with people that he was working with. And so, mm. um, I guess folk that see you most um, see the worst side of you. I often say, if if you want to know my failings, speak to my wife. No one knows them better than her, and after her, my kids, because mm. they get to see me. Um, you know, when I am at my worst, uh, they get to see me when I'm exhausted after a day of you know um, engaging with people and interacting with everyone everyone else's problems when I get home it's often them who get to see my problems um, it seems that uh, Mark's volatility came out particularly amongst people that he was closest to in terms of the work environment um, and just some of the concerns around that and then episode four started to talk about his approach both to masculinity as well as it began to touch on this this area of complementarianism which which I think we need to give a little bit of a conversation to because if there was one critique that I had of the podcast was I, I thought that the that the that the episode which is coming next uh, was was slightly um, was slightly skewed in the in the theology which it was trying to present. But on episode four, um, they were talking about these dad talks, uh, these conversations about sex and family and holy anger and the feminization of culture. Uh, clearly, Mark has this deep concern for, uh, for men uh, in the church, for, for, for men who are, who are walking, uh, who is walking alongside. He wanted to pastor men and see them flourish as heads of homes and mm. as, as spiritual leaders within the context of the local church. And then at the end the, the, of, the, of the show notes, the question gets asked, why do you stay when things get bad? And this really is, is something of an answer to Teresa. And um, people weren't staying because they were petrified. People were staying because there, were, there seemed to be a genuine movement of the spirit in their midst um, when the community began. And as it shattered, they were still maybe holding on to that, to that move of the spirit which they had experienced, as well as their desire for excellence and their desire to see God glorified. Um, and became somewhat blinded or somewhat myopic or somewhat um, narrow-visioned um, regarding some of the issues that, they were, that were happening around them. Anything that you want to kind of say to that? Well, what you remember is that they were quite successful at reaching people who weren't churched. And so a lot of the people in the church, this is their first experience of church. Yes. So they didn't know any different. Well, it was the kind of church you wanted to invite your family and friends to because they would come. And they got deep healing through. They, their lives were turned around. So, I mean, they were very organized as you have to be in a big church. And so the... They, they called it the, the biblical counseling ministry. Um, was very effective for a lot of people, and a lot of people got really helped. And so that the tension with is between when you start seeing things go wrong, what was always trumpeted was, "But look at our success." That was a theme through the podcast that they they highlighted was that if there's any criticism of the ministry, it'd be like, "Well, surely God's in this because look what's happening. Look how many baptisms we're having. Look how many salvations we're seeing. Look how many new campuses we're pumping out." And that was, that was often the rallying call was, yeah, there are issues, but look at this. And so I think 
think really people were conflicted if you look at it and s- some just left some stayed some stayed to the bitter end but mm. I, th- I think they stayed out of out of loyalty because how their lives changed mm. uh, just a question that comes from the outside Stephen who's been listening along to the show uh, just asks for clarity in terms of what is Acts 29 because obviously yeah, I mean you go to your Bible there's 28 there's 28 chapters in the book so, book of Acts uh, what, what exactly is Acts 29 so so Mark Driscoll and Irv, I think it was a Florida pastor they 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 formed a movement to plant churches because Mark at the time was getting lots of questions about it from other people it, it was the rise of the restless and reformed movement it was and he was sort of part of that and so People wanted to plant reformed churches and asked how they do it. And so Acts 29 was in response to that. So Acts 29, even today, is a reformed uh, church planting network. So it was it's more like a fraternal, the way it's set up, is that if you want to plant a church in a city, you, the, the already established uh, Acts 29 leaders in the city will come to you and they form a little committee and you get assessed and to see if you've got the right qualifications, which is a good thing, you know, biblical qualifications to plant. And then they'll look at, if you pass that, how you get resources. And so Acts 29, is, it was taken over by Matt Chandler from the Village Church in Texas, and he's carried on doing a great work. I don't think there's ever really been a problem with Acts 29. And it's, if you look at Driscoll's life, it's one of his great successes that he founded this, set it up well, it does great work for the kingdom. Uh, hundreds upon hundreds of churches have been planted through this network. And they called it Acts 29 because they wanted to carry on the book of Acts. You know, Acts 28 stops and they were like, well, let's just pick it up where, it, where we left off and keep planning churches, just like Paul did. Mm. So we need to talk about, um, about complementarianism. We need to talk about uh, what, was, what was spoken about. I, I think it was episode, uh, episode six or episode five, the things that women do. Um, things we do to women. The things we do to women. And just, you know, as I listened to that episode, I, I was I was quite shaken. I, I didn't realize the extent of possibly the toxicity um, of the environment that had been created, and and maybe the um, the the skewing theology of kind of complementarianism gone wrong. And just some of the things that are, that I saw on display at Mars Hill that I wasn't aware of um, before, and particularly um, the the narrative the the narrative. Um, Takes uh, talks about kind of like the the pornographic um, the uh, kind of displaying the ideal Christian woman or elevating her to almost pornographic levels um, and, and kind of a mix of toxic culture masculinity with biblical theology. Now you and I are both complementarian, uh, and maybe we should just start off by saying what is complementarian, and and then and then talking possibly about about how this theology can go wrong and what are some of the safeguards and checks that should be in place in a local church in order to avoid some of what we hear, heard came out of the Mars Hill story. So if you look at the, the big churches in the States, they'll, or around the world even, they'll fall in two categories. They're either egalitarian, which means there's no real distinction between men and women in roles, and they'll have men and women pastors, men and women in every area of church leadership, and in the home and so egalitarian really mirrors culture and says that man, um, there's no difference between a man and a woman anyone can do anything hmm. and complementarian says well there's there are different roles God, in, in Genesis God created male and female and each male and female reflect a different aspect of who God is there's an element that I can learn about God through engaging my wife that I can't learn through myself because my wife as a woman reflects some element of God that I don't have 
likewise. Mm. And so he's saying that God created as equal but different, just like the Trinity is equal but different. So there's different roles in the Trinity and that the, uh, man is, mankind is, is created in reflection of that. So in the church life, it's usually the complementarian um, stance is that uh, men can, uh, anyone can do any roles apart from eldership and preaching and teaching because we see that um, in in the Bible uh, that is restricted to the role of a man and it's based upon the fact that um, men are called to lead their homes and uh, the man who does a good job in leading his family gets to lead a larger family, the church. That's sort of my sort of way of looking at it. But it's very controversial in today's society because particularly if you think Mark was in Seattle, which is one of the big feministic cities of the States that was... And he was going quite a strong opposite to that, doing a hard-lined complementarianism where their view was that it seemed to be that women couldn't, shouldn't really do executive roles in business and they should stay at home with their children and they should be a housewife, really. They seemed to be the, the real big push. And so it was what's, what we call is... Um, is, it, is that narrow complementarianism? Is it? Is yeah. It? So, so you get two complementarianisms. You get narrow and broad complementarianism. Narrow complementarianism would be what you described in terms of just an understanding that, um, in terms of the church, just like headship in the home uh, is for a, a husband. A husband is to lead a home. So too in the church, headship in the church is to be um, a, a men are to lead in the church, and we get that from. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we get that from 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, and even Titus chapter 1, where the elders of the church are prescribed as being men, um, husbands of one wives, and, and other, and other passages. I mean, scriptures yep. replete, um, with the, with this reality that, that men who are raised by God, uh, lead God's people, particularly in the pulpit and particularly in church leadership. That would be narrow complementarianism would restrict itself to that discussion. Broad con- Broad complementarianism would would say, well, th- this principle can really be extended to all parts of life and all parts of of um, of of the way that we live, society so, in and society in general. So whether that be the roles that women can play in the workplace, in government, the state, uh, certainly within the family, both both sets of complementarian would agree there, um, and the church. In other words, it extends far beyond um, just a discussion in terms of who gets to lead a church. Uh, can a woman serve as an as a pastor? Can a woman preach um, and take authority over be- both men and women within the context of a local church? Um, that said, I, I mean there are principles at play here. Um, so I, I would probably be classed as a narrow complementarian. It's like a strict narrow complementarianism. Um, but but at the same time, like I would affirm that uh, a, a wife needs to take responsibility for the rearing of children. Um, I would affirm that a husband needs to take responsibility, primary responsibility, for taking care of the needs, financial needs and otherwise, uh, of the household. Does that mean that, that your wife can't work or that we would frown upon women that do work? No, certainly not, because she partners, she compliments her husband. And one of the ways that she might compliment her husband, particularly in a South African culture where uh, often one salary just actually doesn't make ends meet. Uh, one of the ways that she might compliment her husband uh, is by going out and, and earning a wage and, and, and together being able to take care of the needs of the church, um, but uh, of, the, of, the, of the family. Um, 
But but we we saw something that was different, and it particularly I, I think in terms of that that episode um, came to bear on aspects of of sex and on aspects of power um, between male and females, and and how that power is exercised and what that expectation is. And it seemed to me as if um, as if it was very clear that a line was crossed that that actually this went beyond what was biblical, beyond what was acceptable, beyond what was like even tasteful and, and actually kind of entered into an area that was a bit grimy and, uh, and at times a little bit dirty. Like, I mean, in, in my opinion, Mark Driscoll in his teachings about sex did go too far and he didn't just do it once or twice. He actually did it quite often. Now, on the other hand, I've got to say, one of the problems in the church today is we don't talk about sex enough. I mean, sex is wonderful. Um, it's created by God. It's created for joy and pleasure and procreation. Um, sex is an important topic that the church for too long hasn't spoken well about. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it seems to me out of a desire to be cutting, out of a desire to be on the bleeding edge of the discussion, Mark crossed the line and went too far. I don't know if you've got anything to add uh, regarding that. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's difficult because when, when I visited Mars Hill, I spent two weeks um, just shadowing different staff members, and it was it was great. That sort of stuff didn't really come out, so I, I I've got no personal experience of of that. I've I've heard Mark's teachings and stuff, um, so I can only go what the podcast said, and they interviewed people that be on the wrong side of things, and it just it just seemed quite um, as though women couldn't really flourish as as much as they should maybe in the in the church, and were were boxed a bit, and particularly talking about the role in the home. I mean, Dris- Driscoll himself had five children, and his wife didn't work at all, yes. as far as I know. And so her, her role was to bring up the five children. Uh, it seemed to me from the podcast that the, there was this feeling that um, if your wife works, if, particularly if you're a staff elder, then something's gone wrong. And mm. that's, that seems a bit strange to me. And it, it seemed to be from the podcast that it was like you expected just to push out your wife, push out loads of children and just be become in a very traditional sort of um you know yeah. role that is is beyond nothing what the biblical complementarianism is about it's more patriarchy and things like that that seems to be what was coming out but it's yeah i mean and and maybe just to say in my own context when uh liesel and myself got married uh liesel was working she was managing a group of people uh, at a in a corporate company um, when we had our kids, by uh, mutual agreement, she stopped working. She took care of our kids. We've got an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, along with Thomas, who's now eight. Um, but as our kids have grown and as they have become increasingly in- independent and the ability to take care of themselves has grown, uh, so too uh, Liesel has had opportunity to go and work. Uh, I mean, and that has helped our family immensely uh, in terms of making sure that the lights stay on and that we pay the bills. Um, and 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 Liesel's done that with great joy, and I've enjoyed the fact that she's been able to do that. Um, I, I do, I do, I, I can see how um, how almost any doctrine in the church. Uh, which is faithfully taught and based on God's word, and actually should have it should result in beauty uh, and and in the promotion of the distinctiveness. For instance, when it comes to complementarianism of both men and women, um, and should glorify God. I can see how that could be abused. I can see how that um, could be just taken 
too far um, and for and for theology for us to become slaves to to theology rather than uh, joyfully uh, released to serve God and glorify him in our lives because of theology maybe just talking about episode six the brand a little bit and I, I mean I can anticipate we're not going to get to the end of this but it's not finished so maybe we can have you uh, again we can talk through uh, future episodes together um, but the brand was interesting to me and I have no doubt it'll have been interested to you because you've got a background in advertising um, I love um, marketing and advertising I, 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 I would well, that is why you have technical guys making sure that lights stay on back at home base. Thank you so much, Vissi, for stepping in and informing me that my mic had collapsed. Um, I think we must have had a, a battery problem. Um, but we were talking about we were talking about branding. Uh, mm. I'm not actually 100 percent sure what what uh, went across or not. But I was just saying I've got a personal love for marketing. I've got a personal love for for advertising. I really enjoyed those disciplines as I studied them. And um, and I know you've got a background in marketing as well. I found it so interesting how um, Driscoll was able to just be in the right place at the right time to leverage amazing technologies as they came out. You know, maybe like Schiller and Hybels and Warren before him, um, he just happened to identify the exact right technology or had a team around him who were able to identify the right technology at the right time. In this case, it was MP3s and then video um, mm-hmm. for the iPod, I think it was, um, at just the right time, which meant that they, that they had this exponential um, increase in terms of audience and ability to, um, uh, to get their, their messaging um, across to a very, very wide audience. But of course, the, this, this focus on brand and then this focus, the, this huge spend. I mean, they, they had, they had a massive team of, of folk that were working both in the media kind of section of the church as well as uh, technology. Um, but this focus really catapulted Mark into celebrity. And, and at some stage, uh, I mean, truly, he could only be described as a celebrity pastor. I mean, you know, if you were if you were in Christendom, and particularly let's say in evangelical Christendom, there's no ways that, or there's hardly any ways that you wouldn't have known who Mark Driscoll was. I, I mean, at the time he had you know New York bestsellers, and we'll talk about some of the fraud that was uh, that came about in terms of getting that to happen. Um, but 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 maybe just talk about for a moment both the advantages. To the South African Church, the advantages of of marketing and the advantages of brand, but then some of the some of the dangers and the offsets that we need to be aware of and that we need to be careful about. What you got to remember is that um, Mars Hill was at a time when the internet was exploding, and as they say in the podcast, it, it allowed people to bypass the traditional media's gatekeepers because you didn't need to then kowtow to certain editors to get your stuff published. You just published. And as long as you were skilled in social media marketing and you could get your, your, your voice to the world. And that's what they did. I mean, Seattle itself was a big tech center, as we, we mentioned earlier. So he had, he could draw and hire people who were very good at what they did. They did. And I think that's one thing he was good at was they, they created good little, um, clips of what he'd say and just tease people with those clips. And they, the, um, the resurgence website was, became one of the big go-to places or um, questions on theology and, as a blog. And they, initially they put up loads of MP3s. I remember 
initially going there and just enjoying lots of free um, sermons and interesting talks. Then multiplied and transitioned into being a proper, a bit like the, the Gospel Coalition is today, really. They, they had that market early on of being the go-to place for um, getting a view on theology or topical news or just from a theological perspective, what's a Christian worldview on this topic? And they, and they, they drew a lot of people to write for them and stuff. So they did very well at promoting that. And I, I think there's some things that the church itself can learn about because you need to get our message. We've got a message that is transformative to people. We need to get the message out there so we can learn from some of the, the, the secular techniques of doing that, I think, without being compromised. I think mm. if your motive is good, then use, use stuff. There's, there's expertise out there, so let's use it, you know. You know, even as you're talking, uh, the Crystal Park story has been a good story, and part of that has been by, uh, has been helped or aided by ability to communicate that story. Um, you know, coming to Crystal Park, it's, it's, it's kind of nestled on the outer skirts of Benoni, um, maybe as a suburb, a little bit away from the hub, the central kind of, uh, uh, places where things happen, uh, the, you know, Rhinefieldy and Faramiri and, and those kinds of areas, a little bit on the outskirts of, of the city, about as east as you can get, um, before you hit, you know, the great beyond. <laughs> it's kind of like Crystal Park Springs, Mozambique, the Indian Ocean. Um, but, but about as far as you can get on the, on the east side of Ikurileni. And yet, um, because we really took messaging and communication seriously, um, we were able to tell our story and, and tell who we represent and how we're going to be representing him. And by that, I mean Jesus Christ uh, and the glories of the gospel. We were able to tell that to our city and, and begin to attract people from all over the city, in actual fact, and beyond. Uh, the, the church has grown uh, over the last period of time from five to 200. In fact, this past Sunday, we were just below pre-COVID numbers, which is like terribly exciting. Like, mm. praise the Lord. But part of that has been this ability to leverage uh, Facebook and YouTube and to a lesser degree, Instagram and website and those kinds of technologies to tell people who we are, you know, an expository preaching church, doctrines of grace church, biblical leadership church or whatever else it might be to, 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 Put those flags down and to call a city uh, to the banners that we had raised, Jesus Christ and Him glorified um, uh, at Crystal Park Baptist Church Benoni. So I, I'm big on, on, on messaging, on communication, on branding, on this discussion. But I, I can see the negative side of it. And um, particularly, I think in the Mars Hill case, um, this creation of a celebrity pastor who then became and slightly I mean, I don't want to say unhinged, um, uncoupled uh, from from reality, a little bit disconnected um, from from the fact that he was just a mere mortal, just a mere man. Uh, almost in some instances, if you hear him speak, almost sounding a little bit in a Herodian fashion, kind of like like pointing people rather than to the glories of Christ, to the to the glories of what he had created. Uh, and there is a danger, I, I know, even in my own heart, of speaking of success and, and quantifying success um, and confusing success with faithfulness. Um, and what we are called to is faithfulness. That, that's really what we are called to be, is faithful men and women of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there should be an element of humility in that gospel calling because um, you know, I think of Psalm 8, uh, you know, oh man, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? The truth is when we handle the things of God 
um, in right ways, we recognize just how big God is and how teeny tiny little <laughs> we are. And it seems at some stage that, that Mark got disconnected from, from that reality. Um, and he might not have, I, I mean, I, I want to be charitable to him. Uh, I, I, you know, it might not have been that he was seeking the power and he was seeking the grandeur, but he certainly ascribed the growth of this organization, this machinery around him. Um, I, I think he got wrapped up in those things in ways that weren't helpful to the glorification of Christ in his ministry and in his life. Um, yeah, so as I think about brand, I think about a, a tool that churches can use, but a tool that we must use with caution, just like any other tool. And a great care needs to be exercised as we utilize this. Yeah, so if you look at what they, they said on the podcast, they talked about an over-curated view. So most of the people weren't meeting him in person. Their engagement with Mark was uh, through through the, the curated video or the mp3 podcasting and so that the, they got the best of him they didn't see him at his worst <laughs> and you know you, i know you said that only your wife and children really see you at your real worst but um there's a benefit of just in in-person church that you get to rub alongside people and just you have people that you, you brothers you can keep you humble and and i think the problem was that mark didn't really have the way he set up the church was he wanted to be biblical and he had a plural eldership, but that eldership got to say 60 elders. And that's just crazy to manage, imagine doing meetings and all of that. So he, <laughs> I promise you, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was really the only preacher there. They had a, and so, you know, I, he, he didn't really have a peer. That was a problem. He yeah. didn't have people that were peers to him. He viewed himself, it seems, just to be the leader. And so when you get that position around the leader and the people are followers, you um you can get it just there's a danger you can go to your head and all of us have to yeah. be wary of that and, and even that idea of peers I mean in the city of Benoni I I regularly communicate with yourself regularly communicate with down the road Rocky Stevenson I regularly communicate with Brent Smith regularly communicate with uh, Andre Brodrake uh, and with others um peers you know mm. men who can look in on Crystal Park and I guess in in some ways keep Crystal Park. Uh, on the straight and narrow. Brother, but he, we, we've come yeah. literally to the end. I, sure. I actually didn't realize. I, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to, to kind of speak us out. Um, but we've got one minute to go until news. And so uh, at this stage, I do need to sign us out. I, I want to say thank you very much for coming in, for talking about Mars Hill. I, I do want to give you the opportunity to come in and talk about some of the other matters that were raised. Uh, there was the charismatic demon hunting and other stuff uh, <laughs> yeah. that we will tackle in the mm -hmm. future. And I'm looking forward uh, to that, but um, uh, as we as we outro now, prayers do go out to all the elders and leaders and deacons holding the line in local churches, as well as to missionaries who serve in foreign fields. Our prayers, our respect goes out to all of our first responders, police, defence force, those who dispense justice, firefighters, paramedics, nurses, medical professionals, as well as correctional service officers in our land. You've been listening to Table Talk with me, your host, Mark. We're going to be going to news now. And so until next week, Friday, walk wisely, live holy, and testify zealously. God bless.